salvation for us. And, and the reason, the reason we, we, we go back to this is because as we read and study Scripture, it's really important to, to set Scripture in the context of, of the grand story that, that is God's, that we are a part of. God is up to something. And we are a part of that story. And so the more we can couch as we look at specific verses, the more we can couch that in an understanding of this grand story, um, the better we're going to be able to understand what God's communicating to us through his word. And so so basically that grand story, if we were to sum that story up in, in, a, in a, a, a quick way, it, it would be a picture of we, we said earlier on in this series that. That there is the sphere where God dwells. And when you read the word heaven in the Bible, it's referring not to this place somewhere in the distant cosmos. That if we had a powerful enough space shuttle, we could find it. And there we would find people who play harps and have halos. That's, that's not what the Bible means when it talks about heaven. Heaven is the place where God dwells. It is the dwelling of God. When we talk about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, those terms are used interchangeably. They're referring to, this, to the same thing. Okay? It's where, it's where the rule and reign of God is evident. The, the, the earth is the dwelling of man. And when the story starts in Genesis, th- this is what we find. We find that God walks with Adam and Eve. There's this intimate, unbroken fellowship, communion together. The dwelling of God is with man. But, but something happened in that story. Brent, talk about that piece. Well, and that's what we looked at, you know, as, as we give our, ourselves and our stories context. There's, there's an, an original rebellion. Genesis chapter 3 has uh, this picture painted of our first parents, Adam and Eve, because of pride, because of self, uh, saying, we don't want God's rule. And so there's this, this break in the spheres to use the, this model or this picture. And so now there's uh, what, what we see as a, as a location has more to do with uh, relationship. So now there's this break in relationship. And I think the question really that plagues Scripture, as you read from Genesis on, there, there's a continuous thread. And, the, and the, the question in everyone's mind is, how in the world will the two spheres be brought back together? Yeah. How could they be reunited in any significant way? And so you see promises, well, God will, God will choose a people. He'll choose Abraham, and he will choose Israel. And there, there's the hope they can, but it never happens, does it? Yeah. And it always fails. It never quite reunites because this is broken. <laughs> so this can't fix it. Yeah, and one of the things we talked about, and we, I mean, we see this every day, don't we? In, in just the culture in which we live, in the human experience, that this is broken. And there's a longing inside the heart of humanity for this to be fixed. And we look culturally to a lot of things, to organizations, uh, to, to try to fix this, to education, to, I mean, whatever. There's a plethora of ideas of how we fix this. But the biblical story does not paint a picture of an institution fixing the problem. It's a picture of a person. Yeah. Who fixed the problem? Because all the institutions are here, right? Government, it doesn't matter, education, doesn't matter what it is. Any ideology is from a broken system. It's always broken. And this is the significance that, and so what happens when Jesus comes on the scene, all of a sudden here's, here's someone who is from the system, this dimension, but is claiming to have equality and have preexisted and have uh, divine attributes, forgive sins, do all these things that we'll get into a little bit more tonight. Yeah. 
And essentially, his followers come to understand that Jesus' claim is that he, specifically because of the resurrection from the dead, rejoins the two spheres. They're touching again. The two spheres are touched not in a philosophy, not in a religion, not in an idea, uh, in a person. It's a personal problem. There's a personal solution. Jesus himself is the the touch point between the two spheres, and we see this uh, language that the New Testament calls first fruits. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Scripture tells us that Jesus, his death and his resurrection was, was a type of first fruits of what was to come. And so if we, if we fast forward and we go to the end of the story, what do we read about? What, what, where is, what's the end of the story? The end of the story is this again. You read Revelation, the last book, and we read about a, a, a place where sickness and sorrow is gone and death is no more. And God wipes away the tears, uh, all of our tears. And it says in the dwelling of God is once again with man. It's, it's restored. One of the things that we talked about that was, that was powerful for me, not because we talked about it, but again, because we're, I feel like we're learning a lot just as we study together. We talked about two letters that we see over and over again in this story, God's story, and it's, it's these two letters. And one of the nights we put up all the words, theological words, that start with the letters R-E, redeem. Renew, restore, resurrect, because that's what God does. We, uh, I was out this past weekend because I, I was sick and hated that I missed what sounded like a phenomenal weekend where the, re, the God of re, the God who redeems our broken, separated story, restored, I guess over 200 new believer packets went out this past weekend to people who, who are saying, I'm, I'm giving my life to Jesus for the first time, recommitting my life to Jesus. And they, they began this journey of what, of what God is doing in humanity. He is restoring what he intended for it to be all along. Yeah. And so, so part of what we've talked about is that we are living between those two points with those hula hoops. The point where there's this first fruits, there's this launch of new creation. That we are a part of and and ultimately what God will do when he brings them together. Now, here's the greatest part of this. The people we read about in the book of Acts, this narrative that we're reading, they were living between the same two points. They're also I mean, we, we, we saw in Acts where Jesus told them to go and wait in Jerusalem for this promise of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus ascended to heaven, to the dwelling of God. But he didn't leave them. He sent the Holy Spirit. And, and one of the things he instructed them with was that when, when they received the Holy Spirit, they would receive power to be his witness. Remember when we talked about witness and that word, what that word means? Is, it's actually the word martyr. It's where we get the word martyr from. And they were to announce to the world that there's a new king. There's a new kingdom and a new king, and that king is Jesus. They were to be his witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, they are closer to where those two points touched. We're closer to the other side than they were, but we're living between the same two points. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's really where we catch up in our story, is we see the church, these followers of Jesus, they had God's presence there in the person of Jesus. Now they have it in an even richer way because Jesus says that I will send to God's spirit something from this other sphere. 
literally to indwell them, yeah. to be inside them. Um, and so new creation is sort of creeping over. <laughs> uh, it's, it's started in the resurrection. And so we see the church taking these steps of going, how do we do this? What does this mean? What's going on? And we get to this story here that we left off in chapter 3 where there's this first recorded healing and I kind of think of it, you know, these, these, these healings, it's almost a picture of new creation. It's not perfect. The person's going to die again, right? It's like Lazarus. Lazarus was raised. He's going to die again. But it's almost like poking a hole through into eternity, through the black. If you ever held up a, a piece of paper and you poke a hole and there's a light behind it, it's like these little, these little touchstones are moments where we, we poke a hole through eternity. And we see that, that promise, that picture of Creation lost in Genesis is creation restored yeah. in Revelation. Yeah, and when you say first recorded miracle, uh, the, after Jesus' after ascension. After Jesus' ascension. So you remember, one of the things we talked about is when Jesus performed miracles, when Jesus healed people, there, there was always this deeper meaning than just meeting the need of a person who was suffering, which that was valuable to Jesus. But it's, it's picture, I love that phraseology, that it was poking holes into eternity, demonstrating that this new, this is what this kingdom is about, the kingdom of heaven. It is a healing, restoring, redeeming kingdom. But now Jesus has ascended to heaven and he sent the Holy Spirit. And this is the first miracle with Jesus ascended where Peter and John on their way to the temple as part of their discipline of worship, an ordinary day, heal this man who was begging by the side of the road, who was unable to walk. And, and as you can imagine, it stirs up something pretty significant. So if you have your Bible, open it to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. And as you're turning, we're going to receive our offering so that on the first night back, I don't forget the <laughs> offering. If the ushers would come at this time and you would listen as we read the scripture. Um, Go ahead. You, once you're ready, you can go ahead and begin to pass the plate. Thank you for your faithfulness in giving. Um, if you're a guest, it, just like on the weekends, we don't expect you to give. Just be our guest. But thank you for those of you who understand this as a part of our worship. It is a part of our worship as much as our singing is our stewardship of what God has entrusted to us and our investment in his kingdom. And so thank you for that. So as, as the offering plate goes by. Follow along with me. If you have your Bible, open it. If not, you can follow along on the screen. Acts chapter 3 and verse 11. Okay, and we're just going to read through verse 16. Here's what it says. While the beggar held on to Peter and John. Okay, so this is, this is the beggar who couldn't get up, who couldn't walk. He's now holding on to them. All the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel... Why does this surprise you? That's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, it, it would surprise most of us. Why does this surprise you? He asks. Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we, we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over. To be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. 
By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, Brent, what is it that stands out to you when we just read that at, at first glance? You know, I, I know kind of the biggest piece of this text is this huge confrontation between, uh, you know, Peter and the, the public, the people. But I don't want to go too fast. Look, something that stands out to me that I think is it's not stated here directly. We see it in the rest of the book, but it's it, it's in their response. Verse 12 has this interesting statement where they say, uh, why do you stare at, a, at us? As if by our own power or godliness, we made this man walk, you know, and I think about the, the well, I mean, this is something that I don't I, I don't think we get enough time to. Um, pride has always been considered by Christians throughout history to be the greatest sin. Uh, it was the sin of the first angel, Lucifer. Uh, it was the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. Uh, It's the one sin that you can't still have and repent, because repentance means (laughs) laying aside pride. Um, It's it's the one sin you look in in the Gospels that Jesus is speaks most harshly to those who have it. Right. Yeah. Um, So it seems to be. And what's interesting, you know, even in this book, chapter five, you remember this. I mean, there are two kind of almost weird, shocking when you first look at it, events. God strikes this these these two people Ananias and Sapphira dead in chapter five he strikes uh, Herod Agrippa in chapter twelve dead both of them because of pride right so I think it's in that context that this this kind of shines um, there's this tendency to 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 not be like a mirror and when we get the glory to you know reflect back to God but to kind of take it in. Yeah. And we see that, that that's the most corrupting thing for us in the world. And yeah. we don't see that here. We see this immediate, why are you looking at us as though this is because of anything about me? Yeah. And they immediately go to God's power. They deflect to who God is. It's interesting, isn't it, in, this, in our, our Western Christian celebrity type culture, <laughs> I, I think this, it is powerful not to just float past that, but to recognize they're, they're in how intent they were on deflecting glory from themselves and always taking it back to Jesus, always pointing it to Jesus. I think that's a really good reminder um, for us. So, so let's talk about the confrontation because that is a big part of this text. Look, at, look again at verse, uh, verse 13. Let me just read this again slowly and listen to what Peter says to them. This is a serious confrontation. He says, the God... Of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, that that meant something. There's a reason he phrased it that way. Remember, he's talking to to people of Israel. He's talking to Jews. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Now, listen to this and, and see if you can pick out which word is used most often. You, I'll emphasize it, you handed him over to be killed. And you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. I mean, this try to picture the magnitude 
of the confrontation that's happening here as Peter speaks to these Jews. He's saying some incredibly direct, uh, making some pretty serious indictments upon their participation in in, in this experience. Well, and the language he used, I mean, he's recognizing, and I think we see it, others have seen it too, the irony and the tragedy, right? You've killed life. I mean, think about the contrast there, right? Let me read um, some, some words to you. There was a, an early pastor in the, in the second century. He died in 180 A.D. And uh, he was from a little town called Sardis. His name was Melito. And he was a pastor there. And he, he preached a sermon on Passover. And he picks up on this irony and tragedy of you know, killing life. Listen to his words. I, just, I like the way he puts it. He says, And so he, it's being Jesus, was lifted up on a tree, and an inscription was attached, indicating who was being killed. Who was it? He asks. It is a grievous thing to tell, but a more fearful thing to refrain from telling. But listen, as you tremble before him, whose account, uh, on whose account the earth trembled, and then listen to how he puts this contrast. I like this. He who hung the earth in place is hanged. He who fixed the heavens in place is fixed in place. He who made all things fast is made fast on a tree. And he says, the sovereign is insulted. God is murdered. The king of Israel is destroyed by an Israelite hand. There was, a, there was another thinker, not a pastor. This guy was an atheist, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche was an atheist philosopher. He died in 1900, so he was really a, around the end of the, of the 20th century. Listen to how, in a, in a poem he wrote called The Madman, though at a little bit of, he's taking a little bit of a different angle, but listen to how he recognizes the significance of this idea of killing God. He says, uh, Whither is God, he cried, I shall tell you we've killed him. All of us are his murderers, but how have we done this? And then listen to his language. How were we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us a sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What did we do when we unchained the earth from its sun? And he says, God's dead. And God remains dead. And we have killed him. And then listen to how he ends with this question. He says, how shall we, the murderers of all murderers, comfort ourselves? What was holiest and most powerful of all the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. And then he ends with this question, who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What's fascinating is both these authors, for very very different reasons, and they reach very different conclusions, recognize the, the irony and the tragedy that Luke, the author here in Acts, is picking up on. You've killed uh, life itself. And what I think is significant is neither Nietzsche... Normalito think it's okay to be ambivalent toward Jesus mm. and who Jesus is. It's not okay to be ambivalent. It's a significant thing who he was, who he claimed to be anyway. Yeah. Well, and in this confrontation, Peter's saying, you did this. And one of the things that, that's interesting, we call this message tonight, the title that we came up with was the brick wall of truth. Because he hits them with a brick wall mm-hmm. of truth. And I, I, I heard a quote not too long ago, I don't even know who said it, but the, the, the quote was, facts are stubborn things. And, and, and that's kind of, it's kind of around the idea of truth. Facts are facts, they're, and they're stubborn. And, and truth is like this brick wall that, that when you crash into it, it it's going to win. The brick wall is going to win. 
And so here's this brick wall of truth, this accusation, this indictment, this confrontation. And one of the things we discover as we read through scriptures, we read through the life of Jesus, is that Jesus was never, he was never content with allowing people to just be ambivalent towards him. People felt a lot of things for Jesus. Some of them hated him. They called for his death. They, they asked for a murderer to be released in his place. They hated him, but they could not just ignore him. Jesus did not allow that as an option. To, and and you, can read, you can read all sorts of, of accounts. Uh, from, for example, the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, you know, Good, good teacher, what must I do to be complete, to have everlasting life? And Jesus says, well, you know, the commandments just keep those. And he says, check, I've done that since I was a kid. I keep those commandments. And Jesus doesn't, he doesn't just go, you just want him to be a little nicer. He doesn't go, well, good, good for you. Now just, you know, just keep it up. That a boy. He, he, he goes, oh, that's great. Just one more thing. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. He did not allow that guy to be ambivalent. He went right to the heart of where this guy's God really was. Because it says he actually went away sad. When confronted with the option of everlasting life or his wealth, he chose wealth and he went away sad. Jesus did not allow him to be ambivalent. He brought him to this place where he says, you need to make a decision. Yeah. Well, you know, even, even the introduction to, the, uh, to that interaction, the rich young ruler comes to him in Mark 10 and he says, good teacher, and he asks him the question. And Jesus doesn't get to the question right away, does he? He says, why do you call me good? Right? He says, no one is good but God alone. But you see where he, he's painting him in a corner. You can't use this term good teacher for me. Either... I'm a, I'm a sinful, fallen creature from the sphere. Yeah. <laughs> or you rightly call me a good teacher because only God is good and I have equality with God. I mean, you know, it's, he's, he's, he's drawing a contrast. Jesus is over here or he's over there, but there's no sitting on the fence with this guy. Yeah. He's radical. He does radical things. He yeah. says radical things. I wonder if one of the tragedies of our, of our culture, and again, not... Not just down on everything. I don't mean it to come away that way. But one of, one of the tragedies, if, if we're not careful, in the American church is, is that, that we would paint a picture of Jesus that's, that allows people to just add a little bit of him to their lives. To, to paint a picture that Jesus really is, he's just a good therapist or he's got some good advice. And we can take some of his values and that would help you be a better mom or a better dad, which, which all of that, there's truth. In that, but Jesus wouldn't allow that. Jesus, you had to make a decision about Jesus. It's the old, was it C.S. Lewis who talked about he was either Lord, liar, or lunatic? Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. He, he did not allow an option that he was just a good teacher. He didn't allow the option that, that maybe he was a prophet used by God. Either Jesus was crazy out of his mind, or he was a deceiver, mm-hmm. or he truly was who he said he was, and that was, that was deity. He was Lord. Well, and you even look at, you know, if, if Jesus was a good communicator, and I think he was, he knew the questions that he would bring up in people's minds, right? I mean, a good teacher does it. A good teacher asks questions knowing, you know, they're leading oftentimes. They want them to go in a certain direction or they want them to do free thought, whatever. But they know what they're provoking in the listener's mind. Well, have you ever thought about that virtually every single thing that Jesus said and did brought up one question? 
he would he would forgive someone their sins, not sins that they had committed against him, sins they had committed against someone else. Right. And they would say, who can forgive but God? Right. He would calm a storm, a weather pattern. And they would say, who has control over the weather patterns? Right. Inference. You know, no one from this sphere. Uh, he did all you know, he would he would do something on the Sabbath and then reinterpret Sabbath law. I can reinterpret the law. He did all these things, and every single time he did something, the same question arose in people's mind. Who does this guy think he is? Apparently, Jesus put his finger on the most important question in life. He's either a lunatic, he believes he's God, but he's not. That's where most people who think they're God and they're not, we would put him in that category. Or he's a liar, he believes he is, and he's not. Uh, I'm sorry, he doesn't believe he is, and he's not. He's just he's deceiving. He's a devil. Right. He's tricking people. He's a charlatan, a fraud. Or he actually believes he is and he is. There's no fourth option. Right. Lord, liar or lunatic. And he he pushed people to this decision making place, didn't he? You know, one of my favorite quotes, I, I pulled it out of a file that I have. It's one of my favorite quotes I've ever heard. And I think I don't remember this for sure, but I think I actually first heard uh, Pastor Dick Fulth quote this years and years ago. You need to say it in his voice then so we get the. <laughs> I'll do here. my best. I could actually do Jeff Lucas better than Dick Fulth, <laughs> I think. Pastor Jeff would not agree with that, but it's, it's a quote by uh, Dorothy Sayers. And she's actually British, so maybe I should use. I won't. Here, listen to this quote. She said, to do them justice, the people who crucified Jesus did not do so because he was a bore. Quite the contrary. He was too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have declawed the Lion of Judah and made him a house cat for a pale priest. What a what a powerful quote. And I think it speaks to, to this whole idea that Jesus is not just someone you add to your already well put together life who's got a few good things to say. Jesus brings us to a place of decision. Is he going to be, when I was growing up I heard this statement, he's either Lord of everything or he's not Lord at all. Is, and so really the question that we want to bring this down to. As, as we begin our circling pattern to land the plane, that's the language we use when it means we're coming to the end of our talk here to give you hope. Uh, the question we want you to think about is how do you respond when you're confronted with truth? How do you respond to that? And, and it's applicable with any kind of truth. I, I love what the, Troy and the guys shared earlier about one of the things that's valuable to them about meeting at 530 once a week. Is, is they can be truthful with each other. And, and my guess is over four years, there's been some confrontation with truth. But, but if you heard, I think it was Lee who said that the most powerful part of that is they're confronted with biblical truth. How do you respond when you are confronted with the truth of God's word, when you're confronted with the truth of Jesus and who, and who Jesus is? You know, I think about, as I think about who Jesus is and this whole idea of, um, I think one of the biggest things that, that we struggle with is the idea of having an absolutely authoritative source, right? Um, I like God. Sometimes there are aspects, though, of what he has communicated, what he's revealed of himself and human nature and the sinful nature and who I am and what he's called me to do and the demands on my life and all that stuff that I don't like, right? That I recoil against. Yeah. And... 
honestly, what I think is that, think about this. Let me, let me get kind of a picture or an illustration. Think about, you know, marriage. Um, we, the most intimate relationship that you have, say with a spouse, a close friend or something like that, the only reason they are a, a close relationship is because you've gone for a certain period of time and at some point, you know what happened? <laughs> they crossed your will. Right. Mm -hmm. They disagreed with you and you had to give it. It couldn't be just I want you to you know, conform to me. You had to give at some point in your marriage, in your friendship. They crossed your will and you had to give. And I think we would suggest that the, the only intimate relationship, the only way you can have an intimate relationship is if you go that distance. If every time someone's going to crush your will, you kind of break off now, nah, forget it. You don't have any intimate relationships. Right. Well, if we don't accept God, the whole God and nothing but God, the Bible, the whole Bible and nothing but the Bible, his, his revelation to us, um, I want to suggest that we're not really getting the full picture, are we? Yeah, no, that's really true. And that's what's happening in this text. The confrontation Peter's having with these Jewish people that he's talking to, the words he uses, they're, they're loaded with meaning. When he says God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know where their minds would go as Jews? They would go back to the Exodus. Because that term was used when Moses stood before a burning bush. And that's who it was that was calling Moses to do what? To lead God's people out of captivity in Egypt. And the defining moment of Jewish culture, of their lives, was the Exodus. And so that, that phrase, just to say the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob brought back incredible meaning. When he uses words like holy and righteous one, we have to understand the context in which that's used. Context matters in understanding what scriptures communicate. It does. You know, this, uh, a couple weeks ago, I went down to Colorado Springs for an evening to be with a friend of mine that I went to uh, college with, and he's now... Um, a professor at a university over in South Korea. He's a Korean American guy, and uh, he it's, it's a business school, um, and so he teaches businessmen working on MBAs in Samsung and Sony and all these companies that come to the business school. And one of the challenge, you know, I asked him. I said, "What? What's one of the biggest challenges that's going on right now as you interact with these people?" And he said, "The hardest part is we in the Asian world are a high context society." And I said, "What do you mean?" <laughs> And he said, a high-context society gives high-context messages. I said, what do you mean? <laughs> and he said, a high-context message is where the, most of the meaning is assumed by you, the receiver, or in my actions. And he said, all of a sudden, all of these people in Sony and Samsung are interacting with Westerners who don't have that context. Hmm. And they come over, or, you know, either way... And there's all these awkward things because it's not understood and they say, get this project done or do this or, or how they interact with one another. Um, I remember one thing, I spent a year over in South Korea after I graduated college and people would ask me early on, which always just felt weird. You'd say, hi, I'm Brent. And they'd say, oh, hi, how old are you? you know, and you're like, excuse me. <laughs> you know, what do you mean? How, that's awkward. How old am I? I'd say, well, you know, I'm 35. And they go... Oh, and if they were if they were also the same age, you go. Oh, when was your birthday? You know, it's like, well, are you giving me a present? Like, what, what, are, you, what are you talking? About? Well, what they wanted to the high context culture is that if I am a day older than you, I talk differently to you than if I'm a day younger than you. Anyone younger or anyone older, the language you use, how you hand them something, how you ask them for something, is totally different. 
And that's all understood. So when I hand someone something or if I call them over, you know, whatever gestures I do, I had better get the context right. And that's just assumed. That's known. And that's one of the challenges. And I think the parallel here is uh, Peter walks up to them and says, you've killed the holy and righteous one. So should we just go into our world and, I mean, tomorrow yeah. when we're out on the street walk up is to that, someone and say, you've is, killed is the holy and righteous one. that our evangelism one. strategy? Yeah. So what would someone at your work do if you walked up and said, hey, you killed the holy and righteous one? <laughs> There's no context there. See, and, and by the way, I'm older than you. And so... I expect That's, that you talk to me differently. I'll help you down the on. stairs. Okay. When we're done <laughs> I walked right into that. <laughs> this is a, it's a very, it's an important piece in us understanding scripture. This would be considered a high context culture. When he said holy and righteous one, those Jews knew exactly. They went right back to the prophet Isaiah. They knew exactly what he was talking about and who he, when he used the term author of life, they knew exactly what Peter was saying. And, and that whole thing you talked about with the relationship and crossing our wills, Peter is making a big indictment that crosses their will. How will they respond to the truth? And, and you have to read ahead because that's next week. We'll talk about he offers hope. He, he holds out hope, the hope of the great word in the Bible, the word repentance. He offers that to them. But for our purposes, what we need, what we need to grapple with is this idea that scripture, that Jesus is going to cross our will. It, I, it, there's a lot of versions of the Bible. There's the NIV and the KJV and the NLT and the TNIV. And, and I think maybe in, in, in America, it, it may be that the most read Bible is the WOV. And that's the whiteout version of the Bible. That's the version where I read it with whiteout and I, I wipe out the things that cross my will that I don't like very much. And that's, that's the danger for us that we have to grapple with. It's that you, you said it's, it's all God and nothing but God or it's, or it's, or it's nothing at all. Are we going to, are we going to read this book with whiteout? Because I'm telling you, if you, if you're reading this book, if you're pouring into this book, it's going to confront your will. Either you're not really reading it if it's not confronting your will or you're reading it with whiteout. And, and so I just want to, I want to challenge you with where is it that God's spirit through his word is, is crossing your will, is confronting. There's things that I read in this book that I go, I wish, I wish that wasn't there. We're going to, you mentioned earlier, we're going to get to chapter five of Acts and, and I'm dreading that chapter because it's a chapter where we, we see God do something that I just think that's extreme. I wish I wish we could just erase that part of this story of Acts, but it's there. Will we will we grapple with the tension that's created by the truth of this book confronting as we understand the context confronting in us our will? Yeah. And you know, I I honestly I, I have to, I asked myself this question this week is as I said, how how much in scripture, how many things do I come across that, that bother me. And I, I honestly kind of thought, not as many maybe as should. And I kind of asked that question of, am I really reading the whole Bible? Because, again, just like in a relationship, if I say, you know, how is your relationship with your wife? Great, we never fight. Well, then you're probably not that close. <laughs> if there's never conflict, yeah. if, you probably haven't gone that deep then. 
Because yeah. at some point, your will is going to get crossed. And if I'm in contact with God, the perfect creator of the universe, I mean, the one who doesn't err at all, he's going to cross my will at some point. And at some point, I am not going to like it. And I want to suggest, too, that if I don't take God as that, I will never grow. I will never learn. How could God ever teach me anything if as soon as he crosses my will, I, I white that out? Yeah. I'll never grow. I'll never. He could. Ne- God could never teach me anything if at some point he doesn't cross my will. Yeah. So I'll never learn. And then number two, like we're saying, honestly, I don't think I'll have true intimacy with God because yeah. I will, I've never reached the point where I allow my will to be crossed. Uh, you know, you may have been in a relationship where you gave and the other person didn't. Right. What do we call that? You go into a relationship, you think, oh, it's going to be great, and they cross your will, and so you give, and, but they never do. That's a manipulative relationship. It's a, it's a, it's a give only, but they never get crossed. They never give. Uh, that's not a healthy, a, a healthy relationship. Right. So, so then it begs the question, because obviously if, if, if a healthy relationship between two human beings involves give and take, God's not going to give. I mean, God's always right. I mean, you're, you're never, you're never going to go, well, here's my point, And God's going to go, oh, never thought of that. <laughs> That's right. I mean, God's, God's going to always be right. So, so God never gives. Yeah. Or, or does he? That's a good question. If, if every relationship has both sides have to give or it's manipulative. So we enter into a relationship with God who's perfect. I guess he never has to give. It's a manipulative relationship. Maybe. Has, yeah. Has given, has God given? What did he do? Yeah. Yeah. He gave his son. The crucifixion. Yeah. The cross. He already gave. So you never have to fear that a relationship with God is a manipulative, oppressive relationship. Because once and for all, in the gift of his son, Jesus, God gave. He gave. So that we could have life. We, we celebrate that every Wednesday night. Part of our, again, if you're new to Wednesdays, part of our, our experience together is to gather at the Lord's table. And, and as we prepare our hearts to do that, our worship team's going to come back. I just want you to think about this reality that the truth of God's word is going to confront your will. But it's not confronting your will in a manipulative relationship with some, some God who is egotistical it's con- it's confronting your will because God loves you so much he was willing to give his own son he gave and because his character his nature is pure and good and he can only act towards you in a way that's consistent with his love and his goodness so every time the truth of this book the work of His Spirit, the conviction of His Spirit crosses your will. It is, it is born out of a love that God has for your life that has been demonstrated to you and to me once and for all in the gift of His Son, Jesus. And so as, as Ben leads us, God, those aren't just words to a song. We are truly amazed at how You love us. And because that's true, we can trust that when your word, when your spirit crosses our will, confronts us with truth, 
that is born out of this amazing, indescribable love. A love that is is out of this world, that's otherworldly. A love that can only come from you. And so, God, we can trust that that confrontation with truth is born out of that love and is best in our lives. And so, God, I join myself with many in this room tonight who sense the conviction of your spirit, the truth of your word. And I join them in repenting, turning from my way, turning from slamming into that brick wall of truth and submitting instead to your Lordship. God, I know for some in this room there are consequences to them submitting to truth. There are consequences to them surrendering to you as Lord of their lives. But God, we know where it comes from. We know that it's born out of your love, demonstrated in the gift of your Son. And so we repent, we turn, we say yes your ways, to your truth. Let it wash over us. Let it cleanse us. Let it make us new. We prepare to receive these emblems by a broken, repentant heart before you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done, for your gift, the gift of your life that you allowed your body to be broken on our behalf, that you allowed your blood to be shed so we could be forgiven. The emblems we hold in our hands, this meal that we gather to partake of every week, reminds us in such a vivid and even graphic way of your incredible love and your sacrifice. tonight in remembrance of that sacrifice what you've done for us and we proclaim your death until you come until the dwelling of God is once again with man and as we live in between those two points may we live in obedience may we invite and welcome no matter how uncomfortable it is your truth to confront our lives so that we can be molded and shaped to be more like you receive the bread. And now the cup. Let's sing one more song together. Can we? Let's sing. Ben, lead us. How great is our God. Will you let this be an anthem from your heart and then we'll let you go. Let's sing this together. This day.